0: and if you're going to win souls you've got to love souls in spite of their meanness in spite of the way they look in spite of everything you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them because Jesus loved them and because Jesus died for them and you're trying to bring them to the son of God
1: Welcome back to Sandy Creek Stirrings. Glad to have you joining me here on the podcast again. I hope you're having a wonderful Christmas season so far. And Merry Christmas to you once again from Sandy Creek Stirrings. I'm excited to be with you today. And boy, it's just been a great time, I feel, being able to spend time with you and to be able to share these episode times with you, and just to talk to you, and just share this time together. I hope you have enjoyed the episode content, and that it's really spoken to your heart, and really to help you grow as a Christian. And of course, that's our goal. My goal from the very beginning was to help Christians grow for the cause of Christ, and to be stirred up for the cause of Christ, to do something for Him. And we talked about that, stirring up Christians for the cause of Christ through practicality, reality, and sincerity. You know, having practical practical episodes, episodes and and content that you can take home and you can use. It's practical. And so we said through practicality, reality, reality, of course, being truth. Um, you know, we have episodes on here that are a little bit of, um, they're different. They um, For instance, we've got an episode coming up on Christmas Day where we've got something special for that. And um, it's going to be a little bit different. But the focus of the episode content here at Sandy Creek Stirrings is going to be about truth. It's not about fluff. It's not about trying to please the listeners so much. I, obviously, my goal is to hope that you enjoy the the podcast. Obviously, you need listeners, and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be something that's tailored to the listener, but at the same time, it's going to be truthful. And sometimes the listeners may not, a, a listener uh, may not agree with something But I'm going to do my best to make sure it's truth, to make sure that it's biblical, to make sure that it's factual, and to make sure that it is logical. And so we've got practicality, reality, and sincerity. Of course, living a sincere Christian life, you can have all these answers, and you can have all these things memorized and talked about, but if you aren't living a sincere Christian life, well, then you've missed it. You really have missed the very point of Sandy Creek Stirrings. And so I hope it has accomplished those goals within your heart and within your life. And I'm looking forward to a great new year and all the blessings that 2021 has to offer. And by the way, God is still going to bless through 2021. It's going to be a great year. I am looking forward to it. It's going to be a phenomenal year, and I'm sure you are looking forward to 2021 as well. Put 2020 in the books, and hey, there's some people who are not not ashamed to say they're ready to be done with 2020. And it's been an interesting year. But it's been still a, a year that God is blessed with, and God's just done miraculous things through 2020. Now, of course, it being a Thursday today, it's a continuation of Baptist history. Last time we did Baptist history, we talked about uh, the act of toleration, and we talked about the fate of the Boston Baptist Church, and we talked about the Valentine Whiteman family. And of course, they spent 120 years between the three men, the, the grandfather, the son, and the grandson. They spent 100 120 years. Did you catch that? 120 years between three men at the same church, pastoring the same church. Just incredible. I want it to be said that I and my family had the same amount of stick-to-itiveness as um, Valentine Whiteman did starting the church there in Connecticut. And just a great story. Make sure to go back and listen to that if you haven't. Now, God during this time is raising up preachers. He really is. He's raising up preachers in this new world. I mean, times are coming to um, times are coming to the point to where you know things are starting to happen with England a little bit. We're still a little late in the 1600s, so it's still going to take some time to ramp up. But things are starting to happen. We're about. Oh, a little less than a hundred years away from the uh, from the American Revolution, from the American um, the Declaration of Independence, uh, we're just about ninety years away from that, a little bit less. And God is raising up preachers because God is really going to send a revival through the New World. Uh, one of those preachers he raised up was a guy by the name of Elias Keach, And um, Elias keach he's hes a man who was a son of a prominent Baptist from England. And so walking in his footsteps, he became a, a fiery preacher. In fact, Elias fancied himself as a skilled orator, and regularly he, he showboated his skills in the art of public speaking. He was really a, a prideful young man. In 1686, he arrived in Pennsylvania, and he worked through for an opportunity to preach to a group in. Penepec, Pennsylvania, and he was 19 years old. And yes, 19-year-old preachers can be filled with a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of pride, and you know, Hey, I was a I was a young preacher, um still a young preacher, and uh, it's a novelty for a lot of folks. Um they don't, you know, you don't see a whole lot of preachers that are 18, 19, 20, 21. You don't see a whole lot of those. Um and you know, so you get people who come up and they just brag on you and they they pour it on, and that can be both good and bad. It's great to have the encouragement. Do not get me wrong. It's great to have the encouragement, but at the same time, you can really puff somebody up and well, Elias Keach, he was that man. And so using his pedigree and really promoting himself, he mounted the platform and began to speak. He began to read from God's Word, and, well, God did show up. But the first person to fall under conviction wasn't anybody in the crowd. It was Elias Keach himself. He began to pause. He began to weep. He began to just to cry, and he abandoned the meeting. You know what he realized while he was preaching? The thing that he was preaching, he had never truly done. Elias Keats realized he had never truly been saved. It had all been a game. It had all been a game. You say, is that possible? Absolutely. I know people, i know lost people who have led other people to the Lord, and they were lost. We had a gentleman in our church, a, a wonderful, a wonderful man, just a, a precious man um, in our church, and he ended up getting saved and Um, he's past his 50s, I think he's in his 60s, and just a wonderful man. Thought he was saved for, I think it was 40 or 50 years, and just got saved this year in 2020. And um, now for him, I don't think it was a game. It wasn't that necessarily. He just didn't truly understand what true salvation was. He just just repeated some words when he was younger, and that was the extent of it. And there are some people like that. They're just going through life, basing it off of some words they said, but not truly having believed with their heart. And then there are some people who they know they're not saved. And it's all just been a game. Can I just tell you this? If you are that person, one day, it won't be a game anymore. It won't be a game anymore one day. One day it's going to be reality. It's going to hit home that you're not saved. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, today is the day of salvation. You say, I don't know if God can save somebody like me. God said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's what God said. God can wash away all of your sins and make you clean. Yes, God can save you. Today is the day of salvation. So, Elias Keach, realizing he needed to get saved, he traveled from Penipec to Cold Springs to an elderly Baptist pastor, and there he got saved. Later on, he returned to Penipec and started a Baptist church in January of 1688. That'd be two, le- two years later after he grew tremendously under that Baptist pastor. Now, Elias Keach became not only a great pastor, but a fiery evangelist as well. He preached all over uh, Pennsylvania, especially around the area- areas of Philadelphia. In sixteen eighty. Eighty-nine. though, he answered the call to go back and be a missionary to London. And in a nine-month span in London, he saw 130 people get saved. In nine months, he saw 130 people get saved and baptized. And Elias Keech would die in 1701, only being 34 years old. And uh, God was just raising up evangelists, one of those men being Elias Keith—a short lifetime, but he did something great for the cause of Christ, Even though, even though he only had a short amount of time to live his life, he still used it for God. And so as we come upon this point in our Baptist History series, the time has come that... Really, all false religions will fall upon. What had happened here in the New World was the congregational churches of the new colonies had grown dead and dry. They said that baptism and the Lord's Supper were, quote-unquote, conversion ordinances by which you achieve salvation. And so on that note, the personal relationship that people were supposed to have with the Lord, it wasn't even a thought. Some people began to arise within England and the New World, and they began to preach that though these ordinances, such as infant baptism, um, they were good, and they were biblical for church membership, but they did not make one saved. And some people began to preach that. They say, you know, infant baptism is a good thing, it's biblical, but you don't need to be infant baptized to be saved. There needs to be a personal... uh, a personal placing of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and it's without works. Now, was this a step in the right direction? Yeah, it was a step in the right direction. At least they're starting to acknowledge what true biblical salvation is. It has nothing to do with works. Infant baptism doesn't take you to heaven. Giving money to the church doesn't take you to heaven. Following the tradition of man doesn't take you to heaven. It's only by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So yes, it is a step in the right direction, but it wasn't a complete turn to biblical doctrine. For instance, um, though some said that infant baptism wasn't necessary for salvation, amen, but then saying that infant baptism is still um, biblical and still necessary for church membership, well, no, you won't find that in Scripture. You cannot find one single time where it says an infant was baptized in Scripture you have to jump to conclusions and make assumptions. Not one single time does it say where an infant was baptized in scripture. It is not biblical. You don't find it anywhere in the Bible. It's just not there. So though this preaching, this preaching for the true salvation, it was a step in the right direction, it just wasn't a complete turn to true biblical doctrine. But I tell you what we can do. As we look back at this time in in history we can praise God for men who stood up on salvation by grace through faith without works of the law or tradition, though they may have had some areas that were just weird okay, and unbiblical. At least they were preaching salvation by grace through faith without works of the law. And let me just step to the side real quick. Let's step off the main trail and, and chase a rabbit real quick. Um, let me give you a quick note on infant baptism. Now, What's the point of infant baptism? Um, For so many religions, they believe that it's uh, necessary for salvation. You go to heaven by being baptized as an infant, and uh, Catholicism is big on that. And um, where where did some of these men who say, you know, salvation is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, where did some of these men get the idea, though, that, well, it's still biblical and you still need it for church membership? Well, these men, here's what they believed and I want to give you this in a nutshell so that way you can understand what's what's going on. These men believe that baptism in the New Testament, they believe that baptism in the New Testament replaced the Old Testament circumcision. That's what they believed, and there're still people who believe that today. They believe that the new baptism New Testament baptism replaces the Old Testament circumcision. And so they say, therefore, children um, should be and could be admitted into church membership at eight days old and be dedicated to the Lord, and therefore it was wise for Christian families to do so, but the child still needed at some point to to experience a true conversion. That's what these men would have believed. Is that true? No. Um, Baptism is not baptism is not the New Testament form of circumcision. Something completely different, something we'll talk about at a later time. So no, that's just a false idea. But here's the deal. We can't thank God that these men were at least starting to preach a that a true biblical conversion was needed, that a true relationship with Jesus Christ was needed. Now, God is going to bless and what we're going to find is we're going to come up across a time period where revival is taking place because here's what happened. these men who they still had some areas that needed to be corrected biblically but these men began to tre- preach true biblical doctrine in these churches that were dead, they were dry, people were unsaved and they began to preach the need for a personal testimony of salvation and just as dry wood is easy to ignite, well revival began to explode upon the scene Now, Remember this, they did not have everything right doctrinally, okay? Let's be clear on that. They did not have everything right doctrinally, but the Bible does say that if Christ is lifted up through the preaching of true salvation, the Bible says in John twelve thirty two, He will draw all men to Him. God's Word, okay, God's Word promises to be effective in the hearts of those who hear it if it is preached like it should be. Now, let me, let me go back and you say, how's that possible? Remember how I told you that I've, I have know people who were lost and they led somebody else to the Lord? How were they able to do that? They were able to do that because if you give the Bible to somebody and you present it how it should be presented and you pre- present true biblical salvation, can somebody else get saved? Absolutely. Was it anything to do with the person? Nope. But it has everything to do with God's Word because if Christ is lifted up, he will draw all men to him. And that's what was happening during this, this time period. Revival is breaking loose. In fact, you know what this time period is called. It's called the Great Awakening. And really, the first Great Awakening, awakening uh, was from the time period of the 1730s through the 1740s. Of course, no real nail-down dates. But in general, 1730s through the 1740s. It took place in England and then came over to the colonies through the preaching of truly one fiery man. There were other great preachers during this time, but one man would really, really just light up the new world for the cause of Christ through this type of preaching. Now, that man was on his way from England, but God already had other preachers here preparing the fields, getting them ready for harvest. You had, remember, Elias Keach in Pennsylvania. You've got Jonathan Edwards. You've heard his name before, I'm sure. Jonathan Edwards, he was preparing the fields with convicting preaching on the needful conversion. Now, Jonathan Edwards was one of those guys. Did he have everything doctrinally correct? Absolutely not. But he began to preach that you needed a personal uh, a personal conversion. In fact, he preached that famous message, Sinners in the hands hands of an angry God. And if you've never heard that message, of course, you can't listen to Jonathan Edwards actually preach it, but you can hear people read that message or you can read it for yourself. It's worth a read. It's worth a listen. So let me encourage you to do that. That'd be sinners in the hands of an angry God. This is a message where he wasn't some fiery, just really, um, you know, really animated type guy when he preached. He stood at the pulpit and he literally read it word for word. That's how he preached. But people couldn't even make it through the entire message without falling to their knees and realizing their need of a savior. And so God was using men to prepare the fields. But there's a man coming from England that God would really use to just light up the new world for salvation. For salvation. That man was a man by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield. Now, George Whitfield was born in Gloucester, England. As a teen, he said this of himself, and I quote, Lying, filthy talking, and foolish jesting, a Sabbath breaker, a theater goer, a card player, and a romance reader, end quote. That's what he said of himself. But his life changed when he became a a server at Oxford. You see, as a server at Oxford, he realized he had never had a personal conversion, and he got saved. There he became acquainted with two brothers. Those men were John and Charles Wesley. They were two other preachers of the awakening time period, and they influenced him greatly. He says this, though, of the time period where he first met the Savior. He said, quote, Above all, my mind being now more opened and enlarged, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees, laying aside all other books and praying over, if possible, every line of word. I got more knowledge from reading the Book of God in one month than I could have ever have acquired from all the writings of men, end quote. Let me just make this statement. Did you hear what he said? I got more knowledge from reading the book of God in one month than I could have ever acquired from all the writings of men. There are so many people who run to this devotional author, and they run to this person over here, and they've got to listen to this person over here, and that's their devotions. Instead of just sitting down with the Word of God and praying and saying, God, show me something from your Word. If you'll do that, you'll have the best devotions you have ever experienced. You don't need a commentary. You don't need a devotional author. Now, those things have their time. Those things have their place, and if you missed when we talked about the necessity of devotions Bible time, go back and listen to it, because I'm all for commentaries. I'm all for all those things. But as some point you need to just let God be your commentator. Let God be your devotional author and just talk to God. talk to God. And so George Whitfield began to grow by leaps and bounds during this time. in fact he established a list of questions that he would end each day with. He would ask himself these questions. He said, here are the questions he would ask himself: have I number one been fervent in private prayer? Number two, have I used stated hours of prayer? Number three, have I used short prayers every hour? Number four, have I, after every conversion or action, considered how it might tend to God's glory? And I'm sorry, not conversion, but conversation or action considered how it might tend to God's glory. Number five, after any pleasure immediately given things. Number six, have I planned business for the day? Number seven, have I been simple and recollected in everything? Number eight, have I been zealous in the undertaking and active in the doing of what good I could Number nine, have I been meek and cheerful in everything I said or did? Number 10, have I been proud, vain, unchaste, or enviable of others? Number 11, have I recollected in eating and drinking, thankful, temperate, and sleep? Number 12, have I taken time to give thanks? Number 13, have I been diligent in my studies? Number 14, have I thought or spoken unkindly of anyone? Number 15, have I confessed all sins? Let me tell you something. If you get yourself asking yourself those questions, um, you'll start making some headway spiritually. So without further ado, Whitfield began to preach. He was known for his loud, yet gripping preaching. He preached with passion. He began preaching in the churches of England, and they kicked him out. So he began to preach in fields, and he began to draw large crowds. From there, he went to the New World, and he began traveling the colonies, preaching in fields and town squares. Benjamin Franklin was so impressed. Yes, Benjamin Franklin, like the Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was so impressed by his preaching, he said this, quote, "He had a loud and clear voice. In fact, Benjamin Franklin later documented that you could hear his voice from one mile away. Yeah, you could hear George Whitfield's voice from one mile away. He befriended George uh, Franklin did. He befriended Whitfield and even printed his sermons, but, We're unsure if Benjamin Franklin ever ever actually accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. We're not completely sure, but we do know he sure did print a lot of George Whitefield's sermons and heard him preach. And so if you ask me what's your opinion, I don't know. I don't know how you could sit under the preaching of somebody like George Whitefield and not get saved. It's a very clear, very clear preaching on salvation, and that's what Whitefield was preaching. He preached salvation. That was his main topic. He wanted people to get saved. And when he traveled through these dry and dead congregational uh, churches, that's what he preached. He preached salvation, and people got saved. Whitfield preached and preached and preached and preached. In late November of 1739, he preached to a crowd of 10,000 you heard that right. 10,000 in Philadelphia. Here's an excerpt from his journal. Um, here, here we go. Let me give you an excerpt to Chester, Thursday, November 29th. Chester being a city, folks, not a person. Chester, Thursday, November 29th. I preached to about 5,000 people from a balcony. It being court day. The justices sent word that they would defer their meeting till mine was over. Wow. You don't hear that anymore. Hey, that preacher over there, he's preaching, so we're gonna stop what we're doing, you know, as a court and we're gonna go over and hear the preacher. Nah. Those were different times, weren't they? Maybe though, maybe George Whitfield was a different man. Hmm. It's a good question. Wilmington, Friday, november thirtieth. Wait a second. Wasn't the last entry from November twenty ninth? Hmm. Yeah, it is. So this is the next day, November 30th. Preached at noon and again at three in the afternoon. I received fre- several fresh invitations to preach at various places, but I was obliged to refuse them all. Oh, that I had a hundred tongues and lives. They should all be employed for my dear Lord Jesus. Newcastle, Saturday, December 1st. Wait, wait that, that's the next day. Preached to about 2,000 from a balcony. Hmm. White Clay Creek, Sunday, December 2nd. 2nd? You mean the very next day? Yeah, the very next day. The weather was rainy, but upwards of 10,000 people were assembled. It surprised me to see such a number of horses. There were several hundreds of them. I preached from a tent erected for me by Mr. William Tennant. I continued my discourse for an hour and a half, after which we went into a long house nearby, took a morsel of bread, and warmed ourselves. I preached a second time from the same place my body Is weak now. What you'll find is George Whitfield. He was weak and he did suffer a lot in bodily conditions, um, but he remained faithful. He traveled almost daily. If you were to look at his journal, he traveled literally almost daily, preached two to three times a day, and he would literally preach until he was just weak and he would be forced to go to bed after a long day. And so, really, when he died, he died just shortly after preaching a message. Some say he even preached himself to uh, to the grave. But you know what? Preaching was everything to him, and he did it well for the cause of salvation. Now, his goal was to see revival and growth within the Presbyterian and Congregational Churches of the Colonies. That was his goal. He wanted to strengthen and build the Presbyterian and the Congregational Churches of the Colonies. And so what he did is he thought, well, if I preach salvation, these people get on fire for God and it will grow the Presbyterian and the congregational churches. And thousands, thousands of people got saved. We don't know how many, but thousands got saved at such a large number, maybe even tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. But it actually caused the opposite effect of George Whitefield's goal. Remember, his goal was to grow the Presbyterian and congregational churches of the new world But what you'll find is, instead of these churches becoming strengthened and unified, they split. Some embraced this salvation that was being preached. Some rejected it and said, no, we just need the old traditions. Pastors across the land, they began to take sides. They began to either endorse the preaching of George Whitefield, or they began to mock the preaching of George Whitefield. But thousands continued to get saved. Literally thousands. As he traveled, he stayed in people's homes, and he saw what when they left the church house, they had nothing to do with God's Word until the following week. And so he began to preach on not only salvation, but the importance of family devotions and personal study of the Bible. Haven't I always said from the beginning that if you're of a different religion, the worst thing you can do for your religion is to study the Bible for yourself? And so these churches began to split. People began to separate from the old, dead, dry congregational churches. They began to study the Bible, and you'll find thousands of people started becoming not Congregationalists, not Presbyterians, not non-denominationals. They began to become Baptists. That's right, Baptists. In fact, many, many converts became Baptists, and Baptist churches flooded the New World during this time period because of the fiery preaching of Whitfield. It really went against his goal. In response to this, in fact, Whitfield recorded as saying, My chickens have turned into ducks. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but I don't think he's trying to be nice. He said, My chickens have turned into ducks. And um, you're telling me whatever that means. It doesn't sound good though. And um, uh, but Whitfield, his goal really produced kind of the opposite. It started growing the Baptist churches. Baptist churches were popping up all over the place, and God was doing a work. Now, when, Whit- when Whitfield was called home to glory, he left behind innumerable converts who became Baptist and continued the revival preaching. Now, unlike the dead services of the Congregationalists, the Baptist services were happy, they were exciting, they were alive. There was a lot of singing there's lots of shouting. Uh, Baptist churches they grew by leaps and bounds to the world. Well, they were hated. They didn't apply for licenses. They wouldn't send their preachers to the congregational or Catholic seminaries. And while other preachers sent their sent while other churches sent their preachers to theological seminaries, the Baptists just studied the Word of God and they preached it as they read it. Many, many during this time period were being jailed for their beliefs. The Baptists, though, unlike others, wanted their ministers to be a prime example of the morality and spiritual levels that the community should follow, and if that meant going to jail for your beliefs, then so be it. Now, I want to present to you real quick, and we'll be finished up for today, just two quick things, and we'll be finished. George Whitfield left a great impact on this world, on this new world, for the concept of salvation. And we could talk about many different converts that were saved during this time of revival, but I specifically want to mention at least one, maybe two, today. The first was a man born in a congregational family in Norwich, Connecticut. He wanted nothing to do with church, spent his time doing anything but things that were quote-unquote Christian. And when revival preaching came through Norwich, his, his single mother, Elizabeth, got saved. And so finally, he he went and he heard the preaching for himself, and he too turned to biblical salvation in Christ at age 17 in August of 1741. His name was Isaac Bacchus. Isaac Bacchus. Now, he and his mom and his family remained in the Congregational Church there at Norwich, but Bacchus records that his pastor wanted nothing to do with this new-birth preaching of George Whitefield. His pastor hated the preaching of these uneducated men that were arising and preaching revivals, and in fact, he tried to stamp out the reality of this revival. So, for those reasons, Bacchus refused to join the Congregational Church for quite some time. In 1745, he and the others withdrew from the church in Norwich and began to hold services as a, quote, separate church. They didn't know what they were. They just knew they weren't congregational, and so they created a separate church in 1745. Now, all over, all over the New World, this was happening. People were breaking off from the Presbyterian and the Catholic and the congregational churches and starting other churches. But Connecticut, had passed a law forbidding churches to have a minister unless that minister graduated from Yale, Harvard, or some overseas university. Now, there was a lot of contention to silence those because they were trying to silence those who began to start these separate churches. And in fact, these separate churches began to face almost the same contempt as the Baptists. In fact, there was a couple pastors who were removed from their pulpit. And so in seventeen in September of 1746, Backus officially answered the call of God to surrender to preach. And so what happened was he violated the law of Connecticut regarding education, and he began to preach as an evangelist. He went into Massachusetts, into Middleborough, and he started a church there in Middleborough, Massachusetts. He is warned by the governor that he should pay taxes to support the local government pastor. That's how, the, that's how the pastor was supported, through the taxes of people. Whether you like that church or not, that's what you did. You paid taxes. It was really taxation without representation, if you look at it. Isaac Bacchus refused, so he was imprisoned. This happened all over the place, folks. Mr. Frothingham was imprisoned for five months. John Payne was imprisoned for 11 months. Mr. Palmer was imprisoned for four months. Even Jonathan Edwards was voted out of his church in June of 1750 but the battle still raged. The people of Norwich back in Bacchus's hometown, they were fined to support their local state church pastor. They refused. They said it violated their doctrine. Forty men and women were imprisoned. In fact, one of the imprisoned people even sent this letter to Isaac Bacchus. It said, quote, I've heard something of the trials among you of late, and I was grieved till I had strength to give up the case to God and leave my burden there. And now I would tell you something of our trial. October 15th, the collector came to our house and took me away to prison about nine o'clock in a dark, rainy night. We lay in prison thirteen days and then were set at liberty, but what means I do not know by. Whilst I was there, many people came to see me, and some said one thing and some another. Oh, the innumerable snares and temptations that beset me, more than I could ever thought before, but oh, the condensation of heaven. Though I was bound when I was cast into the furnace, yet was I loosed and found Jesus in the midst of the furnace with me. Oh, then I could give up my name, estate, family, life, and breathe freely to God. Now the prison looked like a palace to me. I could bless God for all the laughs and scoffs made at me. Oh, the love that flowed out to all mankind. Then I could forgive as I was desired to be forgiven and love my neighbor as myself. Deacon Griswold was put in prison on the 8th of October, and yesterday, old brother Grover. They're in pursuit of others, all of which calls for humiliation. The church hath appointed the 13th of November to be spent in prayer and fasting. On that account, I do remember my love to you and your wife and the dear children of God with you, begging your prayers for us in such a day of trial. We are all in tolerable health, expecting to see you. These from your loving mother, Elizabeth Bacchus. Yeah. Isaac Bacchus' own mother was imprisoned for her beliefs. You know, so many times we've talked about men in this Baptist history series. Ladies that are listening out there, never forget, behind almost every great man, there was usually always a great woman. There were so many ladies who gave their lives... For the cause of Christ, gave their time for the cause of Christ, suffered the same persecution that men would face, all for the cause of Christ. Now, it was about this time Isaac Backus began to question his traditional beliefs. Remember, he was still a separate church guy. And he began to question his traditional beliefs on infant baptism versus baptism by immersion. And so he heard the preaching of a man by the name of Abel Morgan, who was a Baptist, and began to read a pamphlet that Morgan had wrote. It was entitled, The Baptism of Believers Maintained and the Mode of It by Immersion Vindicated. That's a really long title. For some reason, when you go back in history, these people love long book titles. I have no idea why. Now, that that pamphlet was entitled, The Baptism of Believers Maintained and the Motivate by Immersion Vindicated. You want to know who printed the pamphlet? Who published the pamphlet in 1746? If you're a good guess, it was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin. Isn't that interesting? Other separates—separates are what we're calling those separate church people—they began to leave, and they began to join the Baptist movement, and this caused no small stir in Bacchus's heart. After two years of study, after two years of debate, after two years of prayer, he went to Rhode Island because you know what he realized? I need to be a Baptist so he was baptized as a Baptist in 1751, along with other members from his church. On January 16, 1756, the separate church that he pastored in Middleborough, Massachusetts, officially became a Baptist church. And so we're not completely done with Isaac Backus. but here's what I want you to do. I want you to take him and leave him in Middleborough, Massachusetts. He still has a story to tell. He really does. So leave him in Middleborough, Massachusetts. I want really quick, really quick, and we're going to be finished for today. In 1745, though, Whitfield was preaching. This was back when George Whitfield was was alive, of course, about 11 years before that separate church in Middleborough, Massachusetts, became Baptist. In 1745, Whitfield was preaching loud and clear the gospel message when one man, a Bostoner, realized his need for the Savior accepted Christ into his heart. From there, he went to Stonington, Connecticut. He was baptized, and God began to work on his heart. He would be the man who, in my opinion, would have the greatest impact on America for the cause of Christ and Baptist heritage, period. Period. And next week, we'll learn who that man is. Oh, he is my favorite character to study out in all of baptist history in fact you have heard his name before trust me you have you've heard his name before and so we'll talk about him next week now i hope you have a great christmas and continue your great christmas season looking forward to everything that has to offer hey it's it's almost finished so enjoy this time that we have uh, Christmas time of 2020. We're going to play a song for you today. The song is entitled Beautiful Star of Bethlehem, or Oh Beautiful Star of Bethlehem, Shine On. And I love this song. Great Christmas song. Great Christmas hymn to sing at church. Love that song. It's going to be from the CD A Christ-Centered Christmas by Dr. Scott Connell. A Christ-Centered Christmas by Dr. Scott Coddle. Of course, you can buy that CD at drscottcoddle.com. Simply go to the online store, find A Christ-Centered Christmas, Buy it, have it shipped to you, whether for this Christmas or next Christmas, you'll want it on hand. And so today, here is O Beautiful Star of Bethlehem, and may you continue to keep looking up and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ.
0: O beautiful star of Bethlehem, shining afar through shadows dim, giving a light for those who long. Beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine on. Oh, beautiful star, Beautiful, beautiful star star of Bethlehem, shine upon us until the cold. Star of Bethlehem, shine, on, shine, on. oh, beautiful star, the hope of rest for the redeemed, the good and blessed, yonder in glory, when the crown. divine, brighter and brighter He will shine, beautiful star star of